When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Everything 80s Podcast. I'm Jamie. Thanks for coming on out. How did the once small art form of hip-hop become music's most consumed genre? According to Forbes, hip-hop helped generate $26 billion in live music in the last few years, $6 billion in publishing, and $30 billion in recorded songs just in that one year. You never thought hip-hop would take it this far. This is a look at the rise of hip-hop through the 80s its phenomenal growth, and then a look at three of its greatest artists who found success in the industry and parlayed it into something bigger and better. And you can probably picture or imagine the three people I'm talking about. But before we start, if you haven't already, make sure you subscribe wherever you find your podcast. I should be there. Okay, here we go. So growing up in the 80s, I loved hip hop. I was absolutely enamored with it. It was this brand new art form. And I loved all the big stuff like Run DMC, LL Cool J, Rakim, the Beastie Boys. I also loved the real novelty rap like DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince or Young MC or MC Hammer, even Vanilla Ice when he came along. As the years went by, I still was loyal to hip-hop, as this grunge era started, I wasn't necessarily buying into that hype. I thought Nirvana was cool and whatever, but the whole grunge thing I wasn't into. At that time, I was still big into A Tribe Called Quest or Wu-Tang Clan or Beastie Boys again. It still is my favorite form of music. And it's amazing to have been alive in the 80s and see this art form grow into something that was underground, um, a little counterculture, rebellious, hated by a lot of people, and then growing into this massive, massive industry. So we'll start in the 1980s and we'll look at a quick look at its origins and then its rapid growth. I mean, there are whole podcasts devoted, obviously, just to hip hop with you know, 150 episodes covering every little aspect of the genre. So this is, you know, a quick overview. But we're in the, before we get into the 80s, we're getting into the late 70s. And hip-hop, as we know it, originated in the Bronx in New York. At the time, you had notable DJs like DJ Cool Herc, and he would spin records at parties in the apartment buildings in the Bronx. People would just congregate in these areas, depending on what building was hosting the party. They had these big common rooms, and they just put on these 
dances. Sometimes they're outside, but if you know New York weather, you can't do that year round. So to keep the party going, there would just be these constant either basement or small room parties and everything like that. Obviously, people were at the party. They wanted to dance. So funk and R&B records were used. Artists like James Brown were always a big hit because his songs featured several musical breaks. And the break is the portion of the song where the lyrics and most of the instruments drop out and it's just the bass and drums remaining. It would be these moments that were most popular at these parties in the Bronx because everyone enjoyed dancing to these break beats. But these breaks in a song, say like a James Brown song, would only be a few seconds long, maybe eight to 10 seconds at best. DJ Cool Herc realized if he got two copies of the same record, he could switch back and forth between the breakbeats and extend it for several minutes. So that's where you look at the classic turntable setup. You have two turntables and a mixer in the middle and the little slider is called the fader and it takes you between two different songs. So now with the two copies of the same record, he could go back and forth between that breakbeat and extend it indefinitely. So usually he would let it run for several minutes. And this is when everyone would rush the dance floor because it would be these amazing breaks. And if you know some of your R&B history and your James Brown, you know songs like Funky Drummer and the break in that, which is one of the most famous in music history. Another big one was called Apache, and it was by this band called, uh, it was the Incredible Bongo Band. It comes from an old, the original song comes from an old 50s, 60s band called The Shadows, and it was a guitar band. And then this bongo band recreated the song all with bongos, and then the breakbeat would just include this sort of sample drum Congo pattern. Again, you know it when you hear it, it's one of the most recognizable breaks in history. And songs like that, people would show up at the parties just to hear the breakbeats of this, which DJ Cool Herc would extend into these longer sets. So people are obviously loving this. And now these extended breaks appeal to a specific type of dancer who would later call themselves break dancers. The B-boys and B-girls would wait for the breaks in the music to showcase their best moves. As these parties became bigger and bigger, the Master of Ceremonies, or MC, would be the one to announce when the next events would take place. They would plug in the mic into the mixer and they would announce where it was happening, the date, the time, all that stuff. So they figured out as they were going, instead of having, again, to just talk with no music, which was dull, or to not talk over a song with lyrics to get it all mixed up, the DJ would extend those break beats so everything the MC said could be heard. So now it's just a voice over top of a beat, a drum and bass beat. From there, the MCs would start to use that time in front of the crowd to elaborate on how great the next party would be or how great the DJ was. This would lead to bragging, which led to rehearsed lines, which led to rhyming and the birth of a brand new art form. Of course, it didn't take long for this new musical style to spread through the other boroughs of New York. And this is in the days of tape trading and mail-in tapes and cassettes, and which were cheaper to produce. And it was a good time for music in that sense. But, you know, again, hip-hop was limited to the Bronx, Queens, 
Staten Island, Manhattan, go into Brooklyn. You know, it, it shortly spread. It, it felt like a real localized art form. Eventually, someone would travel and take those tapes to the South or the West Coast, and then new versions of hip-hop would spring up in those areas that were more relatable to what was going on in those environments. And every sort of culture and demographic had their own things they were observing and that they wanted to relay in these rhymes. So as hip-hop grows, going into the 90s, it explodes like wildfire. Every song you hear on the radio has some hip-hop element. And there was this notion that if you wanted a hit, you turned to hip-hop. And that's why you saw all these collaborations and all these crossovers. And the problem is the ones who usually get the biggest are not necessarily the best. And in this case, as we're looking at the growth of hip-hop, they don't always become the wealthiest. The Some of the all-time greats include Rakim, Nas, The Notorious B.I.G., Tupac, Black Thought, Andre 3000, among many, many others. But these were people who were at the sort of forefront of the art form and not necessarily the mainstream and the commercial aspect. And they sort of got pushed to the side in favor of some of the people we're about to talk about. Masterclass. And we're looking at some people who all have their roots in the 80s and in the early days of hip hop and then parlayed it into something bigger. When Before we look at them, if we're looking at the modern successful combination between commercial success critical success and sort of industry success, like within their peers. Eminem is obviously at the top of the list there. He's one of the most successful modern rappers and musicians, honestly, of all time, artists, if you want to say. He has a reported net worth of around $230 million. So this is significant, but it's in his case, it's mostly based on just his music and recordings. He is pretty pure and loyal just to hip hop as an art form. And now we just see where a lot of things from the 80s as well started out in more of a, you know, sort of low key, almost like organic nature, and then exploded into something bigger than anyone could ever imagine. So when you look at artists like Eminem, he's stayed pretty loyal just to hip hop. He's just not reached the level of some of his fellow cohorts. So let's look at three here. And the first one, probably imagine Andre Ronell Young, a.k.a. Dr. Dre, the self-appointed first billionaire of hip-hop. He may not actually be a billionaire, though, but Forbes has his net list worth around $770 million. Dr. Dre, of course, started as part of the infamous NWA before branching off into his solo career. And that's the interesting thing with hip-hop in the 80s. As... It grew through New York, and then it, especially through the East Coast, it had a specific sound, and it was a little more about the the funkiness to it, a little more about the rhyming and the scratching and the DJing and whatever. And when these original tapes made their way west, like I was saying, with hip-hop, it's a reflection of what's going on in your environment. And as much as you know, crime and whatnot was a giant issue in New York, in the 80s, it was nothing compared to what was going on in Los Angeles in the 1980s and then going into the early 90s. And, you know, we're all probably familiar with NWA and the LAPD and all the issues that happened there. And this is the the aggression that was going on in this environment between 
um, you know, the society and the people living in it is reflected in the music. So it, it spawned this new era of gangster rap, which again, different beats, different styles, more of that in your face, very aggressive sounding hip hop, completely different to what was going on on the East Coast. And then as, you know, things evolve, they go down South, they create a new sound, more of a laid back hip hop sound. So Dr. Dre branches off from NWA, which is a massive group. They were so massive in the 1980s. They had a number one record without any airplay, no radio, no promotion, no advertising. It was all word of mouth. That's how big this thing got. And it went gold. So for him to step away from NWA was a big deal. And his early earnings through music included his own record label. You probably heard of it called Aftermath. That's what brought us artists like Eminem and 50 Cent. And then he went into big time investing. And then this is when people started to realize, oh, hip hop is a luxury art form. This thing that started in the basements in the Bronx in the 1980s is now at the level of CEOs. And Dr. Dre's first investments away from music included buying like several luxury properties around LA. And then along with record executive and entrepreneur Jimmy Iovine, he started donating money into his community and gave $70 million to create the Jimmy Iovine and Andre Young Academy for Arts, Technology, and the Business of Innovation. They're starting to give back to their communities. And that's, again, when you know something's been successful, when they're trying to pay it forward and return it to younger people. Then, in 2006, Dr. Dre and Iovine teamed up to launch Beats Electronics. Dre had constantly been receiving endorsement deals through the 80s, into the 90s, early 2000s, but rarely took any. A sneaker company approached him, and he mentioned it to Jimmy Iovine. Iovine was looking for a new project at the time, and he said speakers would be a better way to go than sneakers. The first Beats by Dre headphones were released in 2008 and became a pop culture phenomenon. Endorsed by pro athletes and celebrities, Beats by Dre were the ultimate accessory. They also came up with the idea of a streaming music service, but it was slow to catch on. In May 2014, Apple acquired Beats Electronics for $3 billion. Apple got the headphones, they got Beats Music, and the little streaming service, which would go on to become Apple Music. Dr. Dre then became one of the wealthiest artists in the world. So side note here, if you remotely like hip hop or if you like business or if you like culture and society, especially in the 80s and the 90s, please watch the documentary, The Defiant Ones. I think it's on Netflix right now. I mean, these things jump around quite a bit. This is a four part series and it looks at the similar career tra trajectories of Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine. It is not for the faint at heart. It's very not safe for work, but it is Again, a must-watch if you want to see what the relentless pursuit of a goal looks like in art, in business, music, the whole thing. If you think you know what hard work looks like, this documentary actually shows you it. It's incredible. I've watched this thing probably 10 times, and you always take something away from it. Okay, number two of the 80s hip-hop artists that became absolute music moguls. As we talk about Dr. Dre, he claimed to be the first hip-hop billionaire, but that title appears to belong to Sean Corey Carter, a.k.a. Jay-Z. Carter 
famous, I don't know why I call him Carter, it's Jay-Z, famously started out as a drug dealer in the early 80s, but he also had an affinity for hip-hop. After recording his first songs, he used the same approach he learned selling drugs so that he could sell his music, and that's in one of his lyrics where he says, I sold kilos of coke, I'm guessing I can sell CDs. I'm not a businessman, I'm a businessman. Jay-Z, again, one of the most famous rappers and celebrities now of all time, if you think of who his wife is and the ultimate in modern power couples. So the thing that's interesting with him coming out of the 80s, he had this legitimate um, street credibility. He's coming right from these areas that we're listening about in hip-hop and sort of looking at from afar, and he's living it with the drug dealing and all that. But he's got legitimate talent at the same time, and that allows him to sort of break free from this lifestyle he has. Nearly three decades of his music have allowed him to become this sort of enterprise unto himself that built this massive wealth. As of 2019, Business Insider has his net worth valued at $1 billion. And this is how hip-hop grew from this thing that was happening on street corners and and stoops and and places through Brooklyn and the Bronx to Jay-Z having a clothing line. He had Rockwear Clothing, one of his first big investments, with the money he made from hip-hop. He co-founded the startup business in 1999, and it was sold for $204 million in 2007. Then his sports investments, he owned a small percentage of the New Jersey Nets in 2003. Then they were moved to Brooklyn in 2012. His influence helped to rebrand that entire image of the team, taking, again, that same stuff from the 80s from his like street hustling days, and he put it into marketing and branding this team. He only had a small percentage of the Nets, but he sold that portion in 2013 for half a million dollars. Then he has Tidal Music, the streaming service, which has been the bread and butter of Jay-Z's wealth. They, he bought it in 2015 for $56 million. They launched the platform as an artist-owned service that had higher streaming quality than competitors. I don't know if you've ever checked it out, whether you're Apple Music or Spotify or whatever. If you ever chance at Tidal, it is insanely good. I mean, the data downloads are, are so much higher, and it streams at such a higher like bit rate, but it's crazy good. In 2017, Sprint bought 33% of that company for $200 million. Today, titles were $600 million. And then hip-hop evolved into champagne. In 2014, he, brought, uh, he bought Armand uh, Brijnak, which is part owned by um, the company that makes cognac and Bacardi and this giant conglomerate. The champagne goes for $125 a glass. And according to Forbes, he's made around $310 million from it. As I was putting this together, I'd seen that Jay-Z had just sold 50% of the company to LVMH, who owns Dom Perignon and Moet and Chandon. Here's what else Jay-Z took his money from hip-hop and invested in. He was one of the big first investors in Uber, put $70 million into that. Then there's Rock Nation Entertainment. He has a $70 million art collection. He has real estate holdings of $75 million. It's crazy. Here's a really interesting thing is looking back. Jay-Z may be the investment example of the future. Uh, This guy who came out of nothing from the 80s. So back in 2010, Jay-Z met with Warren Buffett for lunch. The then 40-year-old Jay-Z and the 80-year-old Buffett had more in common than they realized. Buffett saw the potential with Jay-Z, even though the hip-hop legend was just getting started in the business world. 
Buffett said that Jay-Z was teaching in a much bigger classroom than he had ever had to teach in. Buffett also said that for any young person growing up, Jay-Z was the guy to look to. Pretty amazing. Okay, last but not least, Sean P. Diddy, Puff Daddy, Diddy Combs, whatever the hell Sean Combs calls himself, he's been one of the most successful people in hip-hop. He is a hip-hop artist and he's a producer. And then he took the money he earned through the music and Bad Boy Records and turned that into a $740 million empire. One big way he did this was through beverage companies, which is pretty crazy. It seems like every celebrity now has some sort of liquor associated with them, but Combs was one of the first. He started with Ciroc Vodka, which has become a sizable piece of his fortune. At its, at its peak, Ciroc was selling around 2.6 million nine-liter cases a year. He also has ownership in a tequila company and uh, this water company. Clothing has been, been a big part of his wealth. He started the Sean John clothing line. He owns part of the Revolt Cable Network, all sorts of stuff. Forbes considered him one of the world's greatest business minds, this guy that came from simple hip-hop. Combs does this by giving his customers his best, but he wants to like service them differently the same way he did with his music. He says that it doesn't matter if it, it is music or clothing or vodka. He plans to get a return on his hard work. This goes back to when he was 12 years old and started a paper route before he got into hip-hop. Once he saw how to service people and how to do this great job and to get paid for it, he parlayed that into hip-hop. And then as a producer into the 80s and the 90s and the 2000s and then grew this giant thing. So uh, the interesting thing here is that with these, like I mentioned with the all-time great rappers, Dr. Dre and Diddy, Puff Daddy, whatever, never confessed to be elite level rappers. And many of us would say they aren't, they can't hold a candle to some of those people I mentioned. They knew though they were mediocre at best, but they made up for that with hard work that they learned in those early days of the eighties when they were hustling and grinding. Jay-Z is one of the greatest of all time, but again, that didn't prevent him from, you know, working hard and hustling either at those early days when they were coming up. What I think these three have done is they've taken the early work ethic that they did with hip-hop just for love to spread this new art form through their neighborhoods and through their boroughs. And then they they took that and applied it to this bigger picture, this entrepreneurial world, and they leveraged it into something bigger. And, you know, even if it's on a small scale, it, it sort of influenced a lot of people to do the same thing. And they inspired another whole generation of rappers and musicians and artists and entrepreneurs and you know, they all talk about the hard work, um, going behind their success and having to be willing to work for what we want, looking out for opportunities, being able to adapt when needed. Um, you know, it just an amazing look at this art form that started so humbly and started from nothing. And now, like, we're talking on this podcast all these years later about these guys being billionaires. I just I find it an amazing subject. Hopefully you liked it, too, as I wind down here. Um, again, thank you for listening. I know there's a ton of podcasts out there. So the fact you're taking the time to listen to this one means quite a lot. If you're interested in supporting a show like this, this is obviously an independently produced show. Speaking of trying to hustle and do hard work, the podcast world is, is so gigantic as, you know, something, another example of something that started small, you know, in people's basements and attics is now this billion dollar industry. And, Smaller shows like this, it's tougher to compete against those celebrities and those businesses and those giant podcast networks. So 
I use the platform called patreon.com, which I've spoken about a bunch on the show. And it's a way to support a smaller show like this for like a few bucks a month. But there are different audio rewards that come with supporting the show. So there's different tiers and the different rewards. So example, at the Boba Fett level, that gives you access to the Everything 80s Music or sorry, Everything 80s Movie Club. Too much music today. And on that show, just for Patreon, I, you know, I review the good, the bad, and the ugly of 80s movies. If you want to check that out or see some more about it, just go to patreon.com slash 80s or wherever you're listening to us on, there should be a link to take you to it. I, there's a few smaller shows I support myself just because I love them. I listen to them all the time. And I know how tough it is to sort of compete against these giant conglomerates. On that note, if you like to support smaller shows, or it sounds sort of counterintuitive here, but listen and follow shows on Spotify, because even though they're a giant, you know, streaming service now, they've really changed their setup to enable smaller shows to be found. And there's different charts and different um, podcast categories that highlight smaller shows. So when you're checking what's hot, it's not all Joe Rogan and all the same stuff coming through. So if you are looking to discover new shows or, you know, support the other ones, listen on Spotify, just if you like it. But if you like listening anywhere else, no problem. So that's it for me. Thank you for your time. Thank you for listening. Hope you learned something interesting. I will be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.